we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing works of the law, because no one will be justified by works of the law. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Galatia was not a city like Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. It was a territory. Um, if one should go north from modern-day Israel or the Israel of the Bible through Lebanon, uh, keep going a little farther north, uh, right along the coast, one would come to the ancient city of Antioch, the place where Christians were first called Christians. Then one could take a left into what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, you could go a little way and come to the capital city of modern-day Turkey, Ankara. And just south of what is today Ankara, Turkey, one would come to a group of cities called in biblical times Galatia. Galatia was a group of small towns and cities where Paul had gone uh, before he was in Philippi, before he was in Thessalonica, before he was in Athens and Corinth, he was in Galatia. In the late 40s uh, of that first century, he was in Galatia. As he moved on to found other churches, there were people who came in behind him. He calls them Judaizers in this letter. Uh, scholars believe these were Jewish Christians. Now, a generation later, the Jews had gone back to the synagogue, descendants of the generation that Paul was a part of. That next generation went back to the synagogue, and Christianity became a Gentile movement. But in Paul's time, of course, there were many Jews who were Christians, and some of them believed that these Gentiles were getting a free ride by getting into the faith without doing Torah. Um, these letters of Paul continually translate law, 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 because the Greek word that he wrote was nomos, and it does mean law. But he's referring to Torah, and Torah doesn't mean law. It means the teachings or the instructions, the first five scrolls in the Hebrew scriptures. They've followed Paul and are saying to these grown men, forerunners of today's Turks, uh, if you're going to be a Christian the way Paul is, you have to be a Jew the way Paul was first a Jew, and that means you've got to be circumcised. Uh, it's torn the churches apart. Not only are they being told you have to be circumcised, they're being told you have to eat kosher, which means you can't eat all this wonderful shellfish that come out of the Mediterranean Sea here. That's not for you. Can't eat all these pigs you've got running around here. That's not for you. It was really tearing the churches apart. So when Paul wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia, he is very upset. Really upset. In Greek, you can tell how frustrated he is. And the main point is, do these new Gentile converts have to be circumcised, all the males, and do they have to eat kosher? Four things in today's lecture. Number one, he uses Gentile sinners, almost as if it's one word. Gentile sinners. 
Now, I could tell when I told you the title last Sunday, some of you were too young to get the point. You didn't laugh. Um, when I was with Dr. Charles Allen in Houston all those years ago, Dr. Allen loved to tell stories about his native state of Georgia. He grew up in small towns around the state. His father was a Methodist preacher and uh, got, uh, moved about every two or three years, as Methodist preachers often did in those days. Some still do and, uh, around the smaller churches. And that's exactly what Dr. Allen's father had done. So they lived in a number of small communities in Georgia. And Dr. Allen would tell stories about growing up in Georgia, pastoring one of the greatest churches in Atlanta, Grace United Methodist Church, before coming to First Methodist Houston. And he would say, when the folks in Georgia mention the war, you don't have to wonder which war they're talking about. And when they say Yankee, they've just said half a word. Because they just said, damn Yankee, without a breath in between. Damn Yankee, damn Yankee. Well, guess what? Paul says, Gentile sinner, same way. Gentile sinner. And he means anybody and everybody who had not been a part of the covenant community. Anybody and everybody who did not know that Israel's God was the only true God. That the Eye Asher Eye was the only Elohim for all the world. This I am who I am was the only God for all the world. And if you didn't know that, and if you had not grown up under the tutelage of the Torah, then you were Gentile sinner. You were a Gentile sinner, one who didn't have faith in the one God and one who had not been taught how to act, how to live by the Torah. My Sunday night, Easter Sunday, when things sort of quietened down for us, I was reading the Sunday papers. Here was a wonderful article about Petra in Jordan. Uh, Petra was the capital of an ancient people called the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans were contemporaries of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, their capital was located in the Wadi Musa, M-U-S-A, the Wadi Musa. Now, some of you know that a Wadi in the Middle East uh, it, it refers to a place that is dry in the dry season but may run full with water when the rains come. Annual rainfall in Jerusalem is about the same as it is in Tulsa, but they get all of theirs in six months, and then they get none the other six months. So the desert begins just immediately south of Jerusalem. But when one goes into Jordan, particularly this part of Jordan, one gets far less rainfall. Uh, yet when the rains do come, they run quickly and then stop. And the Wadi Musa carved out this channel over thousands of years. The Nabataeans found this place. Um, the walls are, go up 50, 100, 150 feet high, straight up sheer walls, sometimes so close together that a camel can hardly get through. It's almost a mile long, and you have to go through that very narrow place, so it was easy, easy to defend. And then you came to their capital. Uh, Nabataeans disappeared 2,000 years ago. Uh, no one seemed to know about this place, Petra, for almost 2,000 years. Maybe a few Bedouins, no one else. 
Finally, it was rediscovered about 100 years ago, and Brown University from our own country has had much to do with exploring this ancient capital. Um, There's a magnificent theater there, but we have no idea what was staged there. They left nothing written, nothing. Well, nothing, not a poem, not a play, not a piece of prose, nothing. And the biggest building is the treasury. They traded in very expensive things like gold and frankincense and myrrh. They lived only a few miles from one Jesus of Nazareth, only a few miles from Jerusalem, where the beautiful temple was that talked of the one true God. And they were born Gentile sinners and they died Gentile sinners and blew away with the wind. Number two, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith, Paul says, is the only way anybody can be set right with God. There is nothing that you can do or anybody else can do to you, even with all their fancy little knives, that will set you right with God. One is set right with God by accepting God's gift. God's gift is love. God's gift is that he wants good to come to you. God's gift is that God favors you, not more than any other child of his, but just as much as any other child of his. For me, Paul said, for me, he did this. For you, he did this. Do you have faith that that is so? Do you trust that that is so? I was reading an article about a special exhibit right now in the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, named after Benjamin Franklin, of course. They have brought to the Franklin Institute the telescope of Galileo. First time it's ever been outside of Italy. Um, Galileo's major discoveries occurred 400 years ago this year, 1609. And in observance of that 400th birthday of this outstanding contribution that Galileo made to our understanding of the universe, they brought his telescope to Philadelphia. I saw a picture of it in the paper the other day. It's not big around. It doesn't have those huge lenses that we can talk about today. Not very big around, a little over four feet long. Uh, probably had several telescopes that he used in his lifetime. But this is the only one that was found with his personal effects when he died. And so it's long been cherished as the one that he favored or used the most. You remember that Galileo, with this rather primitive telescope, saw the rings around Saturn. He saw the moons around Jupiter. He could see how rugged a part of the face of the moon really was. One Sunday he was sitting in church in Pisa, It was a hot summer day, and one of the priests had opened a door on the east end of the building, and someone had opened a door on the west end of the building so that they could get a little circulation through the church at Pisa. And this little bit of wind blowing through caused the chandelier to start moving. 
And Galileo sat there and watched the chandelier moving back and forth and back and forth and discovered this business about pendulums and the action of pendulums and concluded from all he was seeing that the earth is not the center of the universe. It's not even the center of our solar system, of course. When he said in his writings, the sun does not go around us every 24 hours. We are spinning we are turning every 24 hours. That's why we see sunrise and sunset. We are turning and we and these other planets are moving around the sun. In the last 400 years, we've discovered, of course, that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is fairly mediocre as galaxies go. Our solar system, pretty mediocre as solar systems go. Our sun is a star and a pretty mediocre one as stars go out there in the universe. In fact, the article that I was reading about this telescope said, from 1609, the universe got bigger and bigger and we got smaller and smaller. Now, we who believe in Israel's God and believe that that God wanted us to know his heart by sending Jesus of Nazareth, believe that it's all right for us to have bigger and bigger understandings about the universe without believing that we are smaller and smaller. That is, we are children of the one who created the heavens and the earth, who first spoke and first caused and one day wanted so desperately for us to understand his great love for the people on this planet that he sent his son, our Lord Jesus. Number three. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul said. I no longer live. Might help you to catch the significance of this sentence if you remember that in Greek, the word I is not a single letter, not so as it is in English. The word I in Greek has three letters. And if you write it in English, it's E-G-O. The word for I in Greek is ego. Ego. My ego has died. It was crucified with Christ. My being the center, even of my own life, certainly the idea that I was the center of somebody else's world, anybody, everybody else's, when I make myself the center, I'm dying. When I die to self, I'm living. This week I was reading a preview of a movie that was shown last night on HBO. Gail and I don't get HBO at our house, so I didn't see it. But I read the preview. It's called Grey Gardens. It was a movie about two real women. The mother was called Big Edie because the daughter was named Edie also, and she was Little Edie. There was a documentary done on these two women back in 1975. It won a number of awards. The reason they were interesting to people probably was the fact that Big Edie was a cousin of Jacqueline Kennedy. She was a Bouvier. 
She was married to a wealthy man. They lived in the Hamptons of New York. In 1936, little Edie was a debutante. But the depression was getting worse and worse, and the daddy lost most of his money. He decided he didn't want to be married to Big Edie. He didn't want to be around little Edie too much. He went off and married somebody else and started a new family. Little Edie decided she didn't want to marry any of these young men she had met at the ball in the Hamptons. She went to New York to see if she couldn't make it on stage. She didn't have unusual talent. Finally fell in love with a fellow who decided he didn't love her and went on and married someone else. So little Edie went home to live with Big Edie. The documentary in 1975 showed a mother almost 80 and a daughter almost 60 who had turned in upon themselves. There were animal feces all over this house that was literally falling down around them. What had once been beautiful gardens, dead, grown over with weeds. Even wild raccoons had gotten into the house, along with the cats that they had. The two women came across as really crazy, crazy old women. The movie was trying to help you understand how they got there. How they got there. Not just show you what they were in late 60s, late 80s, but, uh, but, but what they were many, many years before and the decisions they made that brought them to the place the world found them in 1975. What was interesting to me was that the preview of the movie was called not Grey Gardens, but The Gardens of the Lost. And this preview was not in one of my religious magazines I get. It was in the Wall Street Journal. The Gardens of the Lost. Those who turn in upon themselves are losing. Are losing. And those who learn how to lose themselves for the purposes of God and other children of God are living. Brings us to number four. I no longer live, Paul said. I've been crucified with Christ. The verb form is really, I am continuing to be crucified with Christ. I'm continuing to die with self because now Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. The one in whom my faith really began to grow, that I could see the love of God for me in Christ Jesus. And I could see that only when I learned how to move self out of center and put Almighty God and God's Christ and God's other children in the center was I going to live. One of the magazines that I get, quarterly publication of Hospice of Green Country. Many of you have had experience with hospice, I'm sure. Ten years ago, my father was dying. MD Anderson Hospital said to my mother, my brother, sister, and me, your father needs hospice now. We've done all we can do. There was no hospice group in my small hometown down in East Texas. The nearest one was in Longview, which is about 35 miles away. The hospice people in Longview said, we will drive to Carthage. 
And they drove 35 miles each way to check on my dad, to try to help my mother, my brother and sister, and me understand what these various stages were that would finally bring our father, mom's husband, to death. They were wonderful. Well, this most recent issue was profiling some of the volunteers, those who give time and energy to hospice. And one of those they mentioned specifically was Vina Farmer. I don't know her. But this story was about Vina Farmer, and she said she kept seeing these little ads. They just seemed to jump out at her that hospice needed more volunteers, more volunteers. And finally, she decided to look into it and decided maybe she could be one of those. She went through the training and not only decided to be one of their volunteers, she was willing to be one of what they called the 11th hour volunteer, which means that if a family feels panicky, even in the middle of the night, that maybe we're at that 11th hour, these who are willing to be listed as 11th hour volunteers, you can call at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. He or she will come. Vina's one of those. The story was that recently she was tending a woman who was so near death that she had now lapsed into deep sleep. There had been no response at all for quite some time. And Vina had convinced other members of the family that they needed to get some rest, and it was okay for them to go ahead and, and go to sleep. She would sit quietly for a while. She sat there by this woman who was not responding at all, breathing deeply, heavily, erratically. And she said, as I sat there, I noticed this woman's hands, rough, calloused. And I reached out and started rubbing her hands and speaking softly to her. And I said, what strong hands you have. I can tell you've spent your whole life caring for others. And she said the eyes blinked once, and one tear ran down the woman's face and dripped off her chin, and then she died. And then she was raised. Amen.